Engaging Leader, Episode 93, The Pure-Hearted Leader, The Surprising Relevance of an Agent Concept. inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. Back around the year 2000, I was helping an executive at one of the world's largest companies develop a communication plan. And as we were working through the key messages, he got tripped up on one of the words I was recommending. He thought the word and even the concept might be dated, old-fashioned. The word was integrity. And I assured him that integrity was very much a relevant concept that senior leaders needed to teach, model, and talk about. The following year, of course, the Enron scandal and downfall of accounting giant Arthur Anderson brought the word integrity into the spotlight of the business world. Today, I'd like to talk about another term that seems old-fashioned, even ancient, but is surprisingly relevant, pure-heartedness. What it actually means may surprise you, and the difference in your leadership impact could be critical. I'll discuss the origin of the term, what it means in general, what the leadership impact is, and provide some leadership examples today. And then you can decide whether or not you want to strive to be a pure-hearted leader. Now, if pure-hearted sounds like an ancient concept, that's because it is. And I stumbled on this, you might even say by accident. I had been asked to give a message, weekend message at a church, and was given the topic. So I didn't pick the topic myself. The church was in the midst of a series called The Pursuit of Happiness, and they were looking at the uh, Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5 when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks through eight messages, eight very brief uh, sayings that have come to be known as the Beatitudes. Beatitude being a Greek term meaning blessedness or happiness. It's like a, a, a blessed state of happiness. So hence this, this series was called The Pursuit of Happiness. And I was asked to speak about Matthew 5 verse 8, happy are those whose hearts are pure because they will see God. So the entire weekend service was based on this single sentence, very short but very powerful, happy are those whose hearts are pure because they will see God. So I had to do a lot of studying to figure out what was actually meant by this, what Jesus meant by this statement, what each of those terms uh, meant, and a lot of my study had to do with this concept of what does it mean to have a heart that's pure, what, uh, what, what's a pure-hearted state of being, I guess. What does that actually look like in the real world? Why would that make you happy? And I eventually became more and more amazed at how applicable this is in our daily life today, and especially how applicable it is for us as leaders and in the and even in the people that we follow. A lot of the reason we follow certain leaders 
is boiled down to what's in their heart. So that's the background on why I started looking at this concept in the first place, a concept that is not one that I've heard about or read about in today's popular literature on leadership or business. And yet there are a lot of overlaps with concepts that are being talked about in business today, such as authenticity, humility, and a pure intent. Now, what does it mean to have a heart that is pure? Well, first of all, let's clear away a misconception that I actually had before I started studying to give that message. If you're like me, the phrase, a pure heart, uh, or a pure-hearted person, makes an image of Mother Teresa pop into my head, or some kind of nun or saint or something. Now, Mother Teresa, she took a vow of poverty, she took a vow of celibacy, she devoted her entire life to serving the poorest of the poor. It's hard to imagine her doing or even thinking anything impure, isn't it? I am a huge fan of Mother Teresa, but if that's what pure-heartedness means, then I feel pretty discouraged because I'm not that pure. I can't imagine myself ever being that pure, and I'm not sure I even want to be like that. And maybe when you hear that phrase, pure-hearted, you get similarly discouraged. But I have some good news to share with you based on what I discovered. First of all, let's try to get an understanding of what the phrase pure heart means that's closer to the historical origin. The Greek word that's used for heart is cardia, which is where we get our word cardiac. But unlike our word cardiac, generally, or I should say often, it's not used to just talk about the body organ that pumps our blood. In fact, if you use the Bible as one example of, a, of an ancient text, the word cardia is never used to just talk about the body organ that pumps our blood. Instead, it means the inner life or character or intention. Gleason Archer says the cardia is the desire producer that makes us tick. In a lot of ways, what we desire in our heart establishes who we really are. In the book, Who Switched Off My Brain?, Dr. Carolyn Leaf shows, talks about how scientists have found evidence that a direct connection exists between the brain and the heart. So, for example, she says the heart is actually like another brain, and you thought you only had one brain. She says that, in effect, the brain in your heart acts like a checking station for all the emotions. There are lines of communication between the brain and the heart that check the accuracy and integrity of your thought life. So what that boils down to is that science is backing up this ancient notion that our heart literally does have something to do with our inner self, our character, and our intention. So we looked at what the word heart really means in this context. Now, how about pure? The Greek word for pure is katharos, which is where we get the word catharsis. Katharos means clean, pure, unstained. It means free from corrupt desire. Think about how so many leaders in politics and business and even ministry have corrupt desires. Many times even just everyday people have corrupt desires. Now, katharos also means purified by fire, which typically refers to when they take gold and melt it so they can separate the gold from other metals that are naturally mixed in with it. Now, here's an interesting fact about gold. Pure gold 
is too soft for use in jewelry. So it's commonly mixed with alloy metals like copper and zinc. So typically, if you buy gold jewelry, it'll either be 18 karat, which is only 75% pure gold, or 14 karat, which is about 58% pure gold. It's, there's a similar thing with gold coins. 22 karat has been used for thousands of years for gold coins. It's almost impervious to chemical attack and tarnishing, and it's hard enough to withstand decades of wear and tear. So you could carry around gold coins in your pocket, for example. 22 karat is about 92% pure. Now, my wife Erin loves dark chocolate. A few years ago, I was at the grocery store, and I wanted to do something special for Erin. And I saw this bar on the shelf of the grocery store that said, Smooth Dark Chocolate, 70% Pure Cocoa. Then I noticed right next to it was Extra Dark Chocolate, 85% Pure. And I thought, nothing's too good for my woman. But then I saw a third bar right next to that one that said, Supreme Dark, 90% Pure Cocoa. And I thought, Aaron is going to be in dark chocolate ecstasy. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. Now, to be fair to me, I think the chocolate company should have posted a warning. Underneath dark, uh, supreme dark, it should have said, caution, tastes like unsweetened baking cocoa. (laughs) I mean, to be honest, haven't you at some point in your life tasted unsweetened baking cocoa with some kind of expectation that it was going to taste good? It looks like it's going to be really good, but without sugar and some other ingredients, pure cocoa is really disappointing. So my score with Aaron that day was C for effort. Thanks, honey. I guess it's the thought that counts. Okay, one more illustration here. How about pure water? To be truly pure, water would have to be distilled where they boil all the water and then condense the pure water back again. But if you ever buy bottles of drinking water, it's not usually distilled. That's because water actually tastes better when it has the right minerals in it. Here's my point. Pure must have a purpose. Whether it's gold or chocolate or water, the purity is measured by how it serves the intended purpose. Gold has to be strong enough to wear on your finger. Chocolate has to be sweet enough to enjoy. And water needs minerals to taste best. So pure is defined by purpose. So just setting aside the the leadership implication for a second, what is the purpose of a pure heart? what, What is the purpose of a heart? Well, I would say the purpose is to love. And I think it's interesting that the very first leaders who Jesus trained, his, his apostles, when they are in their writings and they're sort of talking about what it means to lead the church, they used those same two words, katharos cardia, to talk about a pure heart. And they said things like, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with a love that comes from a pure heart, katharos cardia, a clear conscience, in a genuine faith. And also this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So pure is defined by purpose. And we're going to talk a little bit later about what the implications are for leaders. But first of all, I think, so there's going to be some purpose in, in there, obviously, in the implication. But also, 
I think nobody's going to be considered a pure-hearted leader unless they have a sincere brotherly love for the people on their team. Second, pure is defined by outcomes or results, or what Jesus called fruits. If you know the story of Jesus, you know that he spent a lot of his time healing and helping people, and then he also spent a lot of his time uh, criticizing the group of religious leaders who were in power at that time. And I'll just simplify by calling them the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders that had a, a, let's say, a reputation for being, quote, pure. But Jesus said that they were hypocrites. He said they looked clean on the outside, but despite all their holier-than-thou actions and behaviors and the way they dressed and the way they uh, conducted themselves in public, inside, he said they, were, they weren't clean and pure at all. They were filthy and they, because their hearts were polluted by greed and self-indulgence. And the proof of that was in the outcomes. The, you looked at Jesus's outcomes and you saw people who were helped and who felt loved and respected, the outcomes for the Pharisees were people who were oppressed and ignored and even harmed out of their fear of losing their positions of power. So pure is defined by outcomes. And then third, pure is defined by intent. Remember, what we desire in our heart establishes who we really are. There are a lot of ways to look at intent, but for pure simplicity's sake, I think it's easy to look at it in terms of one of two types of intent, whether you're pure or polluted. And a pure intent is going to be based on love and which let's just call that, uh, let's define that as helping, helping others. So do you have a, a helpful intent? Do you have this brotherly love uh, do you care more about uh, the team and what the team's trying to accomplish? Or do you have a polluted intent, which comes down, boils down to selfishness, which is protecting yourself and just watching out for number one? And you can put on a good mask, but sooner or later, your intent comes through, whether you have a pure intent or a polluted intent. Okay, so did Mother Teresa have a pure heart? Well, based on what we know about her, I would say she probably did, but not because she acted holy or dressed in religious clothing or said the right prayers three or more times a day, not because she was a lifelong virgin and uh, didn't have any personal possessions and, heck, as far as I could tell, didn't really have any fun. (laughs) No, a pure heart is defined by purpose, outcomes, and intent or desire. And based on what we know about Mother Teresa, she loved and helped a lot of people, and her desires were based in love and helpfulness rather than in selfishness. Her influence was truly global. She acted locally, but her influence was clearly global and sustained. I mean, here she passed away in 1997, and still today she is having, her legacy is having an impact on the world. We've talked about what it means to be pure-hearted. Now, what are the implications for leaders? Well, I can think of five. First of all, a pure-hearted leader is going to have a heart for the purpose or mission of the team. 
And secondly, a pure-hearted leader is going to have a heart for the people on the team. Now, let me discuss those two together, explain those two a bit. You see, a lot of leaders get it half right. They get one or the other of those right. And this was illustrated very clearly for me in a book that I've been reading, uh, a recent book that came out called Duty by Robert Gates, who was the Secretary of Defense for over four years, served under both George W. Bush and uh, Barack Obama. Very unusual for a Secretary of Defense or any cabinet-level secretary to stay in position from one administration to the next, and even more so from one party to the next. And the reason he stayed in that position, was asked to stay in that position, and, and did so even though he frankly would have rather retired, is that we were in the middle of two wars. We had the war in Iraq going on and the war in Afghanistan, and the country really could not afford a break in the continuity of our war efforts there. And so what's interesting is that in his duties as the Secretary of Defense, he spent a lot of time visiting with troops, active troops, injured troops, families of troops who had, uh, soldiers who had fallen throughout those several years and throughout both administrations. So he got to see a lot of uh, changes. But one thing that was pretty darn consistent was that the soldiers and their families cared deeply about what the public and especially the public leaders cared about in regards to them and their mission. And they were critical of leaders, political leaders who, or or entertainment leaders for that uh, matter, who said that they supported the troops. We support our troops, but that they didn't actually support the mission because for those soldiers, both were required. And people would say, well, I can't support the war in Iraq because we, it was all based on a lie. There really weren't weapons of mass destruction. Of mass destruction. And there's a valid argument for that. But the fact of the matter to these soldiers was that, well, I'm over here now and the, the, there is an important reason for this mission. We, the, we can't just pull out. If we pulled out now without accomplishing our mission, bad things would happen. That would uh, A lot of unknowns would happen. And it just wouldn't be a healthy situation for this region or for the U.S. And so don't try to claim that you support me as a soldier if you aren't, if you don't care about us winning this mission. I am here to win. I'm not here to receive your, to to see pictures of your yellow ribbons and so forth. I'm here to win this mission. I think it's an important mission or I wouldn't be here putting my life on the line. On the other hand, Gates said that he heard over and over again soldiers who deeply believed that Gates cared about each and every one of them as human beings and that when he talked to them, he was talking with an authentic heart and that the decisions and the things that he really pushed for uh, were not just to support the mission, but were to support them. When Gates first came Secretary of Defense, the, both of those wars had been going on for years and many of our soldiers were dying because uh, they were still 
primarily traveling around in light vehicles like like a Humvee, which is the modern equivalent of a Jeep. And even with armoring, they were very vulnerable to weapons like rocket-pelled grenades and, and other explosive devices. And this had been going on for years, and he had to wage a long, hard battle to get funding and research and development and manufacturing and uh, logistics and all that to get vehicles to the troops in both of those countries that were both appropriate for the terrain and also would be protective against those kinds of explosives. And the soldiers would tell him stories of how this had saved their lives. They, they had been, maybe they got injured, but they didn't die. Or, but they, they had been attacked and they made it through and they knew that if they had still been in a, if, if they'd been in a Humvee, like in the older days, then they would be dead at that moment. So as a business leader, we've got to be passionate about the purpose or mission of what our team is about, but we also have to be passionate for the very people on our team that are helping us achieve that mission and the people or the customers that are going to be served by that mission. Number three is a heart for the process or the journey. I think to be a to be for people to, f- to experience you as a pure-hearted leader, you can't be so intense about the results and the purpose that you don't make sure that there is some positive experience that's happening along the way. That fun is happening, teamwork is happening, people are energized, and also that people are acting with integrity along the way. That you don't make the mistake of thinking that the ends justify the means. For me, that was always one of the the big lessons learned, I I suppose, from the whole Watergate uh, scandal with Nixon's administration. Ultimately, Nixon himself was never implicated in an actual crime. But it's undeniable that Nixon and his leaders had created this atmosphere, this culture that said that the ends justified the means. They got to where they felt that what they were doing, uh, what they were, how they were serving the country, and with the, with the war in Vietnam and other things that was so important that they had to stay in power, for example. They had to win the election for the good of the country, and therefore the ends justified the means. And you know, maybe Nixon and some of the others didn't themselves do anything illegal. That culture, they, they, they were cutting corners in certain ways that maybe weren't illegal but weren't exactly uh, ethical, let's say. And what, but, but that cascaded down the line, and pretty soon you have people that were willing to do illegal things because they felt that the ends did justify the means. So I just think part of that is that the leader needs to have a heart for the process or the journey. And what can we learn and experience along the way while we're getting from A to Z? It's not just all about Z. It's about what's happening along the way. Now, that, that doesn't mean that I'm a huge process-driven kind of person. I don't necessarily always get geeked up about the process. I think that's a, a bit of a personal style in terms of what you like. Some people really like to be process-focused, and that's not generally me, uh, for example. But that doesn't mean that I, as a leader, shouldn't have a, a, some kind of heart for the process or the journey. Number four is an open heart. A pure heart 
is authentic and is transparent. I think that was one of the hallmarks of Dwight Eisenhower, who, when you talk to people today who still remember who, who remember Eisenhower, not just from history books, but were actually there when Eisenhower was the general, uh, the supreme allied commander in Europe during World War II, and when he was a two-term U.S. president in the 50s, they say that they trusted him. Uh, he was likable, but he was, when it came down to it, he was trustworthy. And a lot of that had to do with his authenticity and transparency. Everybody says, you just knew... With Ike, you knew where he stood. And when I've read in his uh, in the recent biography that I've been reading of him, that was a common quote by his contemporaries throughout his career. He had this open heart, and he told you what he thought, and there wasn't the sort of politicizing. It wasn't the, the politics behind the scenes. There wasn't manipulation or passive aggressiveness or anything like that. It was just very matter-of-fact and open. And I should point out that Eisenhower was also a good example of those first two points about having a heart for the mission and a heart for the people, that uh, he really inspired love from the troops because for several reasons, including the open heart that I just talked about, but also because that was very clear that he really cared about winning and he really cared about the people that were affected and about the, the safety and morale of the troops, or what we, we might today call employee engagement of the troops. And then number five and final is a brave heart. What I'm talking about here is, uh, uh, you, is that you're willing to serve the mission and the team rather than self-preservation. So you're, it's a brave heart because you're willing to do things even though it may not be in your own best interest. And I'm going to hold up Eisenhower again as an example of that. Before he was president, Ike served in the military for decades. And among those who knew and worked with him, he developed the reputation for being absolutely trustworthy. As I said, he was honest, he was open and transparent. But it was fairly well known among, he wasn't famous then, but among those who knew him knew that he put the needs of other people and especially his country before his own needs. In fact, several times over the years, he put his duty over his own career. And so at the start of World War II, he was still just an obscure colonel, even though he'd already been serving for 20 or 30 years at that point. Now, at some point, During World War II, the Allies realized that to stop Hitler and the Nazis from taking over the world and putting us all into slavery, we were going to have to work together. But the Allies didn't trust each other. Britain and France had a centuries-old history as enemies. The Soviet Union didn't trust any of the Allied countries, and nobody trusted them. And even the two closest allies, the U.S. and Britain, even though they were, because they had a common history and, and they were, spoke the same language, they didn't fully trust each other. And the actual generals surely didn't trust each other from the two countries because they were always doing uh, pol- political maneuvering to make sure that their own careers were well positioned. So it was important f- to, that you as the general would get credit for this success that happened and uh, that somebody else would get blamed for that problem that happened. 
that's pretty common in any military. But when you've got leaders from different countries uh, trying to work together and command joint troops and all that, it was uh, an even bigger problem. But it turned out that the leaders and generals of these different countries did trust this obscure colonel named Eisenhower because he was honest and he was open and transparent and because he truly cared about the soldiers whose lives were at risk, but especially because it became evident through some of his actions that when he had to choose between what was better for the Allies or his own reputation, he always put the needs of the Allies above his own reputation. In fact, he even put the needs of the Allied team above the needs of the U.S. politicians like President Roosevelt. There were examples when Eisenhower made certain decisions that were not in Roosevelt's favor in terms of keeping him uh, popular and winning the next election and so forth. And even though uh, that would frustrate Roosevelt, it, it wasn't like Eisenhower was this loose cannon. It was done in, with mutual respect. Um, and, and Roosevelt always respected and trusted Eisenhower. And so you get these leaders like Stalin and, and Churchill and Roosevelt, and they agree to make Eisenhower the supreme allied commander in Europe. And then he led the D-Day invasion and the liberation of Europe and the defeat of Hitler and the Nazis. I think in our culture today, this concept of the pure-hearted leader goes against what a lot of us assume about how to be successful in the business world and especially successful as a leader. We assume you maybe you have to be duplicitous and have a hidden agenda and protect yourself, you know, get all CYA and be manipulative. But the pure-hearted leader is about being less cynical. And I think it's going to be more effective both in achieving our, the purpose that we're trying to serve as a leader and in creating an engaging environment and culture for our people. And ultimately, even though you got to have that brave heart and not serve your own needs and your own career and self-preservation, I think it's going to be in your best interest in the long run. So we looked at the pure-hearted leader and we said that it, purity is maybe different than what we tend to think, but that you got to keep in mind the, those examples of the chocolate and the gold and the water. And remember that purity is defined by purpose, it's defined by outcomes, and it's defined by intent. And our implications as a leader is that we've got to have a heart for the purpose, we've got to have a heart for the people, we have to have a heart for the process, we have to have an open heart, and we have to have a brave heart. And I guess I can't end without saying that I heart pure hearts. <laughs> hey, uh, I want to mention that you can uh, get to our show notes for this episode if you go to our website, engagingleader.com, and then put forward slash 93 as in episode 93. And while you're on the show notes page, you can engage with us by providing your thoughts or questions in the comment section or by clicking the red send voicemail button. You can also engage with us at facebook.com slash engagingleader or on Twitter where I am at Jesse Leahy. I should also point out if you don't haven't already done so, on our website, you can sign up to get email notifications uh, whenever we have a new podcast uh, available. And when you do sign up for that, you'll get a, a regular newsletter from us, e-newsletter. And you'll also be able to download a free ebook 
that I wrote called Eight Communication Tools for Leaders, Become a Better Leader in Every Area of Life. This is a production of Asmodel Communications. It's a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications. My colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results in several areas, including talent management, workforce health engagement, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at asmodalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, Cecily Leahy, our web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about.